2: If you like
3: our show, then we think you'll love the New York Historical Society's podcast For
4: the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein. Long before the first battle of the American Revolution, the conflict between Loyalists and Patriots swept through all facets of American society. In Our First Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution... H.W. Brands examines whether this would constitute America's first civil war before the revolution had even been won.
3: In Hanoi's War, an international history of the war for peace in Vietnam, you will visit the new historical terrain of the Vietnam War with award-winning
4: historian and former war refugee, Lian Hang Tina Nguyen. That's For the Ages, Available on Apple and Spotify. Episode 412 of The Bowery Boys. The New York Parking Wars. Hey, it's the
3: Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young.
4: And this is Tom Myers in the passenger seat uh, with a (laughs) a story about the streets of New York City.
3: Yes, but we're not looking at them from the perspective of traveling upon them, as in going from one place to the next, but rather how the streets are used to essentially store cars. Thousands, tens of thousands of cars. Mm -hmm. This is the saga Of parking in New York
4: City. Actually, Greg, I guess you could more specifically say that this is a history of the curbs of New York Mm -hmm. and also of the parking lots and the garages of New York. In a city where the cost of the real estate on one side of the sidewalk is among the highest in the world, why then is the space (laughs) on the other side of that same sidewalk devoted to parking cars? And often for free or for not very much money Mm -hmm. at all. Everybody, it
3: seems, has an opinion about parking. Even if you don't have a car, parking influences your life. Motor vehicles are everywhere.
4: But they weren't always. In fact, Greg, if you find a picture of old New York, let's say from the 1930s, you know, you might see an automat, you see men in fedoras, But you will not see a long line of cars parked on the street against the curb, okay? Maybe you'd see one or two, but in these days, you could not just abandon your car there like you can today for an indefinite period. So what happened exactly?
3: We hope that you'll find the subject of parking rather enlightening because it says so much about how the priorities of a city change. Today, we'll be going from horse stables to parking garages with bright neon signs, from the massive parking lots built by Robert Moses to the curious job
4: occupation known as the meter maid. So it really does tell the story of New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, parking is obviously a serious problem across the entire country. So later in the show, Greg and I will be joined by slate writer Henry Grabar to chat about his brand new book, Paved Paradise How Parking Explains the World, published in 2023 by Penguin Press. Henry brilliantly focuses on the wide range of epic battles that have surrounded the subject of parking cars in America, and he even provides, if you can believe it, a ray of hope. So buckle your
3: seatbelts and throw your Volkswagen in reverse as we relive the battles of the cityscape between pedestrians and cars and the fight for the curb itself, the New York Parking Wars. Alright, start looking for spaces.
0: Oh, you're never gonna find a space on Jerry's block. Just put it in a garage.
3: Look, I have my system. First, I look for the dream spot, right in front of the door, and I slowly expand out in concentric circles.
4: No, come on, George. Please, put it in a garage. I don't want to spend an hour looking for a space.
3: You can't park in a garage. Why? I don't know. I just can't. Nobody in my family can pay for parking. It's a sickness. My father never paid for parking. My mother, my brother, nobody. We can't do it. I'll pay for it. You don't understand. Garage. can't even pull in there. Tom, let's begin with with an etymology lesson or two here. (laughs) Let's do. Please. (laughs) The verb park Mm -hmm. and the noun parking. We all know what a park is, Mm -hmm. the noun that is, which traces from medieval times to mean a livestock pen or, quote, a track of land enclosed as a preserve for beasts of the chase. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? Okay. That's where we're starting, okay? okay? Over time, that evolved into a specified enclosure and eventually a lot reserved for public use. By the 19th century... Military items like wagons and cannon carriages were often kept side by side in a row, like books in these parks. And so it was said the vehicles were parked there. Okay. Ah. And soon that would apply really to carriages and wagons of all kinds during times of large of the moment gatherings, such as fairs and horse racing.
4: Uh, So, technically, then the word. Parking, if I'm understanding you, comes from park, as in public park, mm-hmm. even though a parking lot is about as far away from the pleasure <laughs> you know, of an actual park as you can get yes. today. But you weren't also storing the horses in these parks. No,
3: I mean, maybe in places with nice pastures, perhaps, but not in New York City. The primary storage facility in cities, of course, were stables. Mm -hmm. In the early 19th century, these were often clustered behind wealthy homes or on back streets known as mews, which were a row of carriage houses where both horse and carriage were kept and where the chauffeurs and other servants often lived. Mews, as in Washington Mm Mews, near Washington Square Park. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, many, many streets and alleys in the village were, quote, stable streets. Um, They really come in many different names. Alleys, courts. Mews. Mews. In the rest of the city, uptown, where the grid plan prevented the construction of
4: side streets, stables were pretty much built everywhere. And often where the owner didn't have to smell the <laughs> That's, stable, yes, right? Yes, very true, yeah. But building a stable costs money. So that really did limit who could afford to own a horse and own a carriage and to hire a chauffeur. And also, when a chauffeur was taking you, let's say, downtown to a meeting, what did the chauffeur do with the carriage and the horse? Where did they go while you were in there? Did they just kind of circle the block (laughs) over and over? Well, if they could, they would wait
3: temporarily on the curb, a term known back in the day as ranking. So if you saw a row of horse-drawn handsome cabs waiting for riders, Mm -hmm. they were actually ranking. But parking referred to something specific with vehicles side by side at an angle or perpendicular to the curb. But in the Gilded Age, ranking was, of course, the standard by which vehicles were temporarily managed at the curb. But, of course, you wouldn't keep a horse and carriage there at that spot for very long for many reasons, and some of those reasons rather foul smelling, actually.
4: It became <laughs> obvious how long you had been there. Yes. At a there point. was a marker, very specific, how long you were standing there. <laughs> Which brings us back to the stables. Yes. We wanted to pack these carriages and animals off the street, right? Mm-hmm. Today, old stables are some of the most you know, unique and charming. Structures, you know, standing in New York City, and many have been renovated into luxurious homes. Many stables,
3: in fact, survived this period because they were subsequently turned into automobile garages. Ah. Now, we have an older show on the history of the taxicab, which we reran in July of 2022, and which talks about the first vehicles on the streets of New York. In particular... Electric vehicles, which were stored in garages with electric charging stations. The first automobile district in New York was located in Longacre Square, and it featured many small garages and even old retail storefronts and churches, which were converted into garages.
4: Wow. So by the early 20th century, then we have garages popping up all over the place. Sometimes, you know, garages even next to stables because this is a transition period. But let's get back to the curb. Yeah, I'm going to go curbside because vehicles of all kinds, you know, needed to pick up and drop people off. But I also imagine then that as we get to gas powered automobiles by the 19 teens. That curb must have gotten very, very crowded.
3: And it was already chaotic by this time. Just generally speaking, there were very limited traffic or road regulations at this time. And those that were there, which you'll speak to in a minute, were barely enforced at all. The streets were absolutely dangerous. A mix of horse-drawn carriages
4: and automobiles, bicycles, trolleys, And to get to the parking then, what happened if you needed to get out of your vehicle, of your car, for any period of time? By the 19-teens, there were people, a small number of people, uh, driving automobiles into the city for work. There were New Yorkers with automobiles Mm -hmm. who were driving to work.
3: It was actually against the law to leave your automobile unattended for very long. And cars were frequently impounded in vast raids. No surprise, of course, in that so-called automobile district I described earlier, which by 1904 was now called Times Square. The main issue at the time, according to a 1908 Tribune article, was quote, not to make war on persons who had good reason to leave their machines unattended for a short time in the streets, but to compel the garages and repair
4: shops to cease using the street as a place of storage. Mm, their machines. <laughs> their machines. <laughs> <laughs> their machines. Reading between the lines here, the, the garages of Times Square. Then we were, were full, probably. Mm-hmm. Right. And and cars were spilling out onto the curb and repair shops here were so obviously, you know, overflowing with customers that their cars then, too, sat in the streets. That, that still happens today. Sure. Right? Yeah. And it began here, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so by the 19 teens, had the city really marked off official parking spots in along the streets? Some, but they just there just weren't enough. Parked cars were treated
3: as nuisances, right? They were annoyances, and their owners were often harshly punished. The police nicknamed them piking parkers. (laughs) Piking parker, you'll find that term at a very limited time in newspapers in the late 19-teens. It's very interesting. I found one extreme example in a 1918 Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quoting a magistrate Reynolds, The police intend to bring in all the offenders, and I expect within the next few days to get a number of men who leave their cars unattended. I warn you that this practice of leaving automobiles on the street and obstructing traffic for hours must stop.
4: I wonder what your magistrate (laughs) Reynolds would think, uh, you know, if he walked through the streets today. (laughs) Not happy, not thrilled, this magistrate. (laughs) These kinds of actions might have made sense, you know, when there were only a few thousand cars on the street. But by 1920, there were almost a million cars in the state of New York, according to registration records. And many of those were obviously being used in New York City or by drivers commuting into New York City for work or for pleasure. Something had to be done about this driving and parking free for all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So into this
3: picture steps a man named William Phelps Eno who had been born into great wealth in New York City in 1858. The subject of traffic congestion and safety actually obsessed him at an early age, and the introduction of the automobile on the busy streets finally set him into action. He abandoned his real estate business and spent the rest of his life working to improve city streets. Although it would take a while for people to enforce his revolutionary ideas, Eno's innovations would eventually change New
4: York forever. And it was just in time, as automobiles became immensely popular, even glamorous in the 1920s, and car ownership would massively increase, turning you know this nuisance of parking into a serious problem. We'll get to Eno and battles over New York parking after this.
3: On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC
4: in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Ooh, there's a spot there. (laughs)
0: Oh!
2: Ooh, there's a good one.
0: (laughs) That spot says compact
1: only.
4: Marge, that's just a suggested car size. Easy. Easy. How am I doing on the right? Uh, we're getting a lot of sparks over here, Dad. Uh-huh. Easy. Easy. Perfect. All right, everybody out the window. So William Phelps Eno, pulling back for a moment, you know, you just talked about how by the turn of the century, it was really the Wild West here for driving in the city. And I want listeners to visualize this, because at the time, you could drive, you know, you could you could pass, you could turn any way you wanted in your car. Stop in the middle of the street if you wanted. <laughs> sure. But by 1903, there were actually some rules. Yeah, but nobody was...
3: Following them, from
4: what I understand. <laughs> right. Enforcing, <laughs> <for reading. laughs> Enforcing was a different story. Um, but these rules had been written by William Phelps Eno in 1903 when he wrote New York's first set of driving rules. And soon the city then commissioned him for more. For example, that traffic rotary for Columbus Circle was finished in 1905. And this was a phenomenon, right? A couple years later, his rotary in Paris opened up around the Arc de Triomphe. But New York, you know, he was based here in New York, kept him busy. He also, by the way, introduced many other important things like, oh, I don't know, the traffic light, the stop sign. And also he developed one way streets in New York City. He introduced those in 1908. I mean, can you imagine New York City without <laughs> one way streets?
3: I mean, considering how narrow so many New York streets are. No, I, I, I can't even conceive of
4: what would have happened without them. <laughs> But Ina would continue to write and publish and be a leader in traffic engineering and updating New York City's traffic code. And in 1924, that code finally became more enforceable. It was actually made part of the police code. Ah. And now there you know were these rules for driving and passing and turning. Basically, everything you learned in driver's ed. And these were enforceable, and these rules included how to park. He wrote a journal article in 1924 called, quote, The Storage of Dead Vehicles on Roadways. That opens with clarifying once and again the the difference between ranking and parking.
3: Oh, the storage of dead vehicles. This sounds like a very dark Pixar movie.
4: (laughs) (laughs) In it, he makes, yes, another distinction here between what he calls live vehicles and dead vehicles. Mm. He writes, quote, The definitions are live vehicles, one whose driver is present and prepared to move vehicle— Dead vehicle, one whose driver is absent or unable to move vehicle. Live vehicles do not give any unreasonable annoyance or cause a serious fire hazard if the general traffic regulations are being followed. Dead vehicles, however, constitute not only great inconvenience to the general public and injury to business, but a veritable menace likely to result in uncontrollable conflagrations because fire apparatus cannot reach its destination properly. He also states that, quote, "...live or dead vehicles may be ranked or parked on any roadway and for any length of time, provided it doesn't interfere with the rights of others." unless prohibited from so doing or limited as to time by an official traffic sign or special regulation. And he also kind of frowns on parking or ranking at all in busy areas. But much of Manhattan is, of course, and remains very, very busy. Yes, which gets us back to something you mentioned earlier. You could leave your car, your dead car, Mm -hmm. if you will, for a short period, but not for hours, up to 30 minutes or up to an hour during the day, and only up to three hours after midnight. And that rule was listed out of safety
3: concerns, but I'm sure it was also helpful for street cleaning. Right, even sanitation collection. But did New Yorkers really not park for more than short periods of time? I, I have my doubts about that.
4: <laughs> well, actually... There were some cheaters, obviously, but this was surprisingly effective. I now turn our attention, Greg, to a a 1925 photo of West 96th Street. Um, This photo was described by Christopher Gray in The New York Times. He marveled at how much in this photo, how much wider the sidewalks were because they hadn't been gobbled up by parking spaces uh yet. And then he pointed out that you could only see uh, on this entire block two cars parked on the street. Whereas that same year in 1996, you would have seen 120 cars on that same stretch. So yes, apparently here in the 1920s, people were abiding by this regulation that permitted parking for up to about an hour and three hours after midnight. And so this meant, of course, that everybody with a car in the city needed to find a spot in a garage to store their car overnight.
3: And I must say, there actually were some amazing garages to choose from, if that is your thing, architecturally. Um, one of my favorites was something I wrote about on the website years ago, which was the Kent Garage at West 61st Street and 9th Avenue. It was a 25-floor garage skyscraper, right? We're all in the skyscraper era, so everything's mm-hmm. a skyscraper. It was in brick and terracotta, they actually called it a motor hotel, which is a fancy place to keep your car, and it used an automatic elevator system to drop cars off and then deliver them to their drivers below. And
4: almost like an automat. I don't know why they makes me think. <laughs> yeah, it's a like little an bit. A yeah.
3: By the way, that building is still around. It's it's the Sophia Condominium and it stores human beings and
4: their possessions, not cars. Well, maybe somewhere different elevators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as more and more New Yorkers bought more and more cars, many people started parking illegally overnight. Out of necessity. Yes. And this pressure, right, this parking problem increased, which really then was pitting pedestrians and the police against car owners who were also claiming, you know, that this whole overnight garage mandate was really some kind of insider funny business that was just being promoted by the garage owners themselves. Well, I mean, mandating garage spaces was good for business. And these rules would stay on the books through the 1930s and through the 1940s.
3: Now, perhaps the show that we are recording right now would not exist perhaps we wouldn't be thinking so hard about parking if not for an event which took place in the summer of 1950 all right let me set this stage americans in the post-war period will become ever more reliant upon the automobile and there were simply so many cars now on the streets of new york live or dead to use antiquated vernacular that the situation had become a genuine crisis There were just so many people who lived in New York City, 7.9 million by 1950, and so many more who commuted here. Cars were parked everywhere, in garages and privately run lots, of course, but mostly in the streets. There were not enough garages, nor was there enough interest in garages to satisfy the rapidly growing desires of drivers who wanted their vehicles closest to them, and of course stored for free. Albeit perhaps under the threat of theft or vandalism. In November of 1949, the New York Daily News ran a survey of government officials under the banner, Wanted, a way out of the traffic jam. In this article, parking is addressed. Among some of the suggested solutions are quote, parking spaces on the fringes of Manhattan with shoppers bust into the center of town. Mm. That's one idea. Somebody suggested a public parking authority to finance and construct parking garages. Now, could you imagine who, would have, who was the advocate for a, a
4: parking authority? Can you guess? Probably a genius of a city planner.
3: <laughs> that was, of course, Robert Moses. Yes, yes
4: a man who would, will soon make matters worse here in terms of automobile traffic.
3: But a couple people in that article made the shocking suggestion of just letting cars park on one side of crosstown streets. This was actually a compromise which helped to solve another mounting
4: problem, which was litter on the streets. With cars parked everywhere, there was there was simply no way to keep the streets clean. That overnight ban was not even really effective and you couldn't clean everything overnight anyway. Mm-hmm. These cars weren't just taking up space. You know, they were making the city dirtier by being there. And, and we're not even talking yet about <laughs> air pollution. We're no. talking about litter.
3: New York's sanitation commissioner, Andrew Mulrain, was was wild about this parking on one side of the street idea. Mm-hmm. His street cleaners could actually do their jobs on certain days and certain hours, of course. He grabbed this idea and took aim at what was certainly the filthiest neighborhood in New York in 1950, and that was the Lower East Side. And so on August 1st, 1950, alternate side parking was born on the streets of a 90-block section of the neighborhood, which today is actually the East Village, from Houston Street to 14th Street east of Lafayette. This was a success, and so by the end of the decade, alternate side parking would
4: be initiated for the entire city. Which would be great for street cleaning. But wouldn't it also make parking actually worse in some ways in New York? From the perspective of a driver, do you know a single person who loves alternate
3: side parking? I love alternate side parking. Maybe
4: Pat Kiernan, you know, gets to announce
3: it. (laughs) The city's official herald of the alternate side parking rules. Today's system of alternate side parking is extremely complicated, as many people will tell you, requiring cars to move during certain small windows of time, creating double parking fiascos on many streets. A driver has to be exquisitely attuned to the conditions imposed on their particular street or risk a parking ticket. But back then, back in the 1950s, The idea was that there would be a greater increase in off-street parking garages and lots, and there would be a huge increase in garages in Manhattan, and starting in 1954, the first municipal parking lot was constructed in Flushing, Queens, at Union Street and 39th Avenue. You could have more parking lots in the outer boroughs, after all, because it was not quite built out or nor built up as Manhattan. Additionally, many more people in the outer boroughs owned cars, as mass transit could not possibly at that
4: time service the needs of many rapidly developing communities. And to be clear, the city charged people to park in these municipal garages as well. Yeah, that
3: flushing lot, for instance, was 40 cents for 12 hours and a nickel for 90 minutes. So, you could imagine this was not a permanent lot for cars and was mostly used by people who worked in Manhattan and took a bus or a
4: subway into work from that lot. The big problem with all these new garages and lots, of course, they often weren't near your destination, work, shops, whatever, theaters. It's human nature, right? People mm-hmm. will always want to be as close as possible to their destination. And that often means that people will prefer parking on the street close to where they're going. So,
3: of course, no surprise, they begin charging you for the pleasure of parking on the curb. On September 19th, 1951, the city debuted the very first street parking meter at 125th Street between Lenox and 7th Avenue at 10 cents an hour. Reviews were mixed. According to the Daily News, quote, Bernard Kleinert, a sewing machine repairman, let out a large howl. These things are little thieves. A dime is 10 cents too much, unquote.
4: (laughs) Bernard always leaves me in stitches. (laughs) That was 1951. By 1960, meters were, you know, all over the city on major thoroughfares. But if you now have this mechanism that's regulating parking, didn't you also need something to enforce these new parking rules?
3: Yes. Or someone, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. You need what the city called at that time meter maids Uh, from The New Yorker, June 4th, 1960. Quote, this week marks the debut of a new body of officers on our streets. A body of a hundred women who dressed in natty blue serge uniforms rather like those of airline hostesses will be keeping a short eye on behalf of the traffic department on 50,000-odd parking meters scattered throughout the five boroughs and will be issuing summonses of cars illegally parked at curbside meters. And why was this new body of officers all women? Well, other cities had already employed parking meters in attendance, By this time, we were a little late, and they found that women did a better job, quote, by exercising greater tact and
4: patience than men. Hmm. But how did all of that tact and patience work out for them? Yeah, in real time. On on the streets of New York, when they were writing a ticket?
3: They they kind of became public enemy number one and subject to great harassment. As our upcoming guest, Henry Graber, lays bare in his book, Paved Paradise, quote, the moniker made suggested a domestic servant more than an officer of the law. They were paid half as much as the police. Instead of nightsticks, they carried tape measures to record distances from hydrants. Unquote. "Men were introduced into the force by 1967, but that did little to conjure respect for who was easily called quote the
4: city's most unpopular civil servant." And none of this really curtailed people from actually driving. By the 1960s, New York City was filled with cars.
3: Cars as far as the eye could see. The area around the fountain in Washington Square Park, for instance, was turned into a parking lot back when cars could drive through the arch southward. Um, Of course, you know, if Robert Moses had his way, it would have been a highway plowing through the park. Moses is, of course, the man most responsible for the vehicular stranglehold over the city, building highways which demolished neighborhoods, but also brought more cars into the city.
4: And, and of course,
3: out of the city. Yeah, Moses' highways fed into the newly developed interstate highway system, allowing people to freely move to the suburbs at a time when people were fleeing the centers of big cities due to urban blight for those who continued to work in Manhattan, these highways actually encouraged commuters to drive, perhaps parking in one of the many newly built parking garages, many of which were municipally owned. The 1950s and 60s saw a parking garage construction boom here and across the country. Garages were perfectly functional for the leading architectural style of the day. Brutalism... Because they were these colossal concrete structures with little need for ornamentation.
4: Which had often been built, right, by demolishing older historic structures that had fit the character, the neighborhood, yeah. which led to further blight, which might have also driven more yeah. people away. And yeah,
3: would you mind if I... Just drop the name Robert Moses (laughs) one more time into the story. It is a parking show, yes. (laughs) Because he embraced the automobile in another way, constructing massive, just enormous parking lots for some of his most treasured projects, parking lots for his beaches. To this day, Jones Beach State Park has a lot equipped with 23,000 parking spaces, In stark contrast to the engineered natural setting that it's sort of serving.
4: We're seeing here a a rather like vicious, unbreakable cycle, Mm -hmm. right? And I will just say, in Moses' defense, because we got to give him something here that Moses was also, I think, fighting for the future of the city Mm -hmm. and was not alone. City leaders and architects all over the country and world thought that the survival of the city depended on making it more automobile-friendly. But this did mean that more cars, more parking, more lots, and more garages were happening in New York City. We will speak with author Henry Grabar and talk about parking today in New York City right after this.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
2: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
4: So as we then move through the decades, there is this friction, right, between New Yorkers' desire for free street parking and a sense that they are entitled to it and have been since the 1950s and their desire to find a space in a conveniently located garage that is also somehow affordable. It is less
3: hassle to keep your car in a garage, right? Unless, sure. of course, you can just find that perfect
4: spot downstairs, you know, right outside that you can see outside your window. Oh, maybe it's a spot there, you know, that's, that's good for four days. Mm-hmm. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month saved because you always find a good spot. And that is the parking game that millions of New Yorkers have played for decades. And that game, that tension has been playing out at the very same time that New York and cities across the country were dealing with pollution and really trying to clean up the smog that had been produced by, among other things, all those cars. And Congress was trying to do something about this. In fact,
3: they passed the Clean Air Act of 1970.
4: That was a different time, (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) which for the first time gave the government and the EPA the power to limit pollution, including pollution caused by cars. This law was strengthened with major amendments in 1977 and 1990. And over the years, proposals then were floated for many things, among them changing parking rules and, and limiting the number of parking spaces a reversal from creating more parking spaces, which, of course,
3: would discourage people from driving in the first place, which was the point.
4: Exactly. And in New York, there were various proposals that were floated for banning parking in great swaths of the city, in fact, which didn't come to pass. But one thing that did change was how the city dealt with mandatory parking laws. These are laws that require any new construction, residential or commercial,
3: to provide a set amount of parking. And after World War II, these laws came into effect throughout the country, when, as I mentioned, cities were trying to be more car and parking friendly.
4: Yeah, but these laws actually made it very difficult and expensive for developers to build anything, especially anything affordable. And Ultimately, they made the car problem worse by making parking easier. It's a little counterintuitive, but Mm -hmm. it's true. So in in the wake of the clean air law in 1970, the city did away with these parking minimums in Manhattan on the east side under 96th Street and on the west side under 110th Street. And more recently, uh, less than a decade ago, these minimums were loosened elsewhere in the city too, in Brooklyn and Queens.
3: So generally speaking, parking rules are in flux here, but by the 70s and the 80s, something else was going on too, and perhaps very predictably, parked cars were getting stolen.
4: It got bad. Parked cars were being stolen on the street, and also even in garages. In 1977, for example, 133,600 vehicles were stolen, okay? Okay. Some of them Mm. is probably insurance fraud, but that is one car for every 60 New Yorkers stolen in one year. I read an article
3: in the New York Times from 1981 about how cars were even stolen from their owners in garages. Men in fake garage uniforms would walk up to a car, hand the driver a ticket, and then drive off with their car forever. I mean, this is this
4: is really intense. Gutsy. It's <laughs> yeah. gutsy. It's also very theatrical. I mean, there are costumes involved, but still terrible. And that situation, this situation, persisted for years. My freshman year in 1993, my dorm neighbor Lena, okay, had her car stolen while her parents were moving her into the dorm. Mm-hmm. That that opening weekend, right? It was. It was double parked on 113th Street while they were moving in her stuff, and then it was just gone with with some of her stuff. I mean, like her sea monkeys and and Christmas lights gone.
3: I'm sure many of our listeners out there have have
4: certain stories like this, including someone whose voice you're about to hear in a few minutes. But before we go there, it's just important to point out that pedestrians, who had always gotten, you know, sort of the short end of the stick in terms of urban spaces here in New York. Shoved into the gutter, if you will. (laughs) Yes, forced to walk in the gutter, off the curb when the sidewalks got too crowded. Well pedestrians began to win some important battles in the parking wars here in New York and around the world, really, as a new kind of urbanism took, took hold in the late 20th century and early 21st that really prioritized pedestrians for the first time over parking. And much of that change started in New York City with Mayor Michael Bloomberg's Transportation Commissioner, Jeanette sadik Khan, who in 2007, decided to turn the asphalt triangle that was down in the shadow of the Manhattan Bridge in Dumbo into a little plaza, a prototype for what she called the Public Plaza Initiative. She said at the opening ceremony, quote, a short time ago, this was a barren parking lot, but people immediately filled up this space as the green came in.
3: In this case, the green wasn't like grass. It was, uh, it was paint. Right. But it did feel like a revolution, you know, like some fighting back finally.
4: Yes. And in many ways, I mean, this seemed like there was an awakening. People were saying, oh, right. Yeah. This plaza with benches and, and checkerboards and places to sit and sip a coffee with flower planters. This used to just house a dozen cars. So it seemed like a no brainer. It was an mm-hmm. easy tradeoff. For everybody except, you know, a handful of drivers who were losing these spaces. And then that launched so many more of these public spaces. Right. The next one in the Flatiron District. And then many, many more, including most famously, I'd say even most notably, given its history, in Times Square, in in the former automobile Mm -hmm. district, which banished traffic from Broadway and created this outdoor carnival mm-hmm. in what used to be just kind of a slow moving traffic you know parking lot
3: and of course we can't really talk about parking in the modern era without mentioning city bike which launched in 2013 10 years ago which replaced many parking spots with bike docking stations
4: and, and an Khan also moved street parking toward the lane often taking out a lane of of traffic in order to protect the bike lanes From the hazards of moving cars. And we're now joined by Henry
3: Grabar, a staff writer at Slate and author of the newly released book, Paved Paradise How Parking Explains the World, which describes itself quite accurately as a hilarious, enlightening, and utterly original investigation into one of the great hidden forces of modern American life the humble
4: parking spot. Welcome to the show, Henry. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, your childhood in New York and how, I guess, how parking was a part of your early life or early on as a New Yorker.
1: Sure. Well, I, I grew up in lower Manhattan. So by uh, American standards, I grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have a lot of parking. Although at the time, my apartment was still within easy reach of a few pretty large surface parking lots, which had these sort of auxiliary functions they would assume on the weekends. Like one of them was a a big flea market, for example, and another one I used to play catch in with my dad. And so they had this kind of um, this other life as flexible spaces. That said, I, I think that relatively speaking, I grew up in one of the densest urban environments in the United States. And one of the reasons that I think I got interested in parking was later traveling to other cities looking around and thinking, wow, there is a lot of parking here.
4: Like, where did all the buildings go? (laughs) And did your family have a car?
1: We had a car. We had a car when I was growing up. We parked it on the street for many years until it was stolen, uh, at which point my parents moved it to a garage, and then the garage was uh, torn down to construct a condo building. So really, you can see the entire history of uh, Manhattan from the 1980s to the present day in in the story of our
4: family car. And it's fascinating. You introduced this idea that I guess you started to become aware of the fact that there was a contrast that existed in New York between the, the high value of the real estate right on one side of the sidewalk and then the sort of really low cost of the parking on the other side of the sidewalk.
1: Yeah. And that's something that became apparent to me, especially in recent years when I returned to New York as an adult trying to find my own place in the city. And you realize that, well, I mean, I don't need to tell you, uh, real estate in New York is really, really expensive. And people fight over every last square foot of every unit. And then all of a sudden you go onto the street and that land is mostly 98% of the time given away for free, provided you're using it for your car.
3: Was there like a particular aha moment, like when you were doing your regular reporting that you were like, you know what, I need to spend some time, and going down the rabbit hole of parking and write a whole book. Was there one
1: particular incident that set you into motion for that? Well, you know, parking would come up in in story after story. And in some places, it would be kind of obvious. Like one New York story that I covered and grew very frustrated with was city politicians' refusal to build bus rapid transit lanes for bus commuters. The average speed of a New York City bus is something like seven miles an hour. And literally millions of people ride those buses every day. And, and those buses run really, really slow. And the reason they run slow is because they're stuck in traffic with everybody else and they have to go around double parked cars, et cetera. Other cities also have this problem, and they have found a way around it by dedicating street space for buses, but New York refuses to do that because it would entail taking street space away from private cars. So that's just a really easy, uh, obvious example of how our attachment to parking prevents us from making improvements to society as a whole that would obviously benefit many more people than just the you know, literally dozens of people who, who might park their car along, along a certain bus route.
4: Yeah. And when you are looking at how parking works in other cities, I mean, in in Paved Paradise, in your book, you cover parking throughout the country. And you spend a lot of time examining parking in California and Chicago. But New York's parking, at least from what I gathered from your book, is different, right? The situation in New York is largely different. Is that because of the, the density question? Is it because of the, the minimum parking laws? Why is New York different? I think the number
1: one reason New York is different is because people who live in New York don't use their cars every day. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's start by saying that a majority of New York City households do not own cars. So the way that we allow free curbside parking to take precedence over initiatives like, for example, getting bus commuters uh, to work on time is already catering to a pretty small and relatively wealthy minority of New Yorkers. But beyond that, the role that parking plays is just different in New York than it is in other cities because people don't use their cars every day. Even most people who have cars don't use them to get to work. And they're they're something that they might use to do a big grocery run or go away to their country house on the weekend or um, take a kid to music lessons or something like that. But they're not really something people use most of the time to commute into Manhattan. And People are mostly leaving their cars on the street in front of their house all week long. And so the curb has less of a function as a point of access and daily use for people coming and going. And it really is just a big open-air garage.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are afraid to move their cars. You've you had some really striking st- tales in your book of, you know, people conforming their lives to the fact that they were too afraid to move their car because they'd never find a parking space again. That is something I think many New Yorkers who have cars can relate to.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I talked to a woman in my book who's from Boston who describes losing 11 pounds because she is too scared to use her car to go to the grocery store lest she lose her parking spot. You hear people say that all the time in New York. Like, you once you get that parking spot, you want to hold on to it. And mm-hmm. that just, you know, it's funny because I think that it, it goes both ways, right? I think people who have cars in New York and they park them at the curb, they say, well, okay, yes, I park at the curb. But, like, why are you trying to take away my parking? I'm not part of the problem. I don't drive my car every day. So I'm not here contributing <laughs> to congestion, to traffic. I'm not part of the pollution problem. I'm just storing right. it here. Well, the other side is like, okay, well, then that's exactly why uh, your your car storage here shouldn't be a priority because you're not some you're not somebody who needs your car every day, and here you are uh, taking up this incredibly valuable public space.
4: And, and this is because people see parking as a right, mm-hmm. right? Some somehow it's like this God given right to put your car overnight on the streets, and yet you mentioned that you know it didn't become even a law in New York to allow overnight parking until the nineteen fifties. So. Is it that we lack the historical context? Is it that it's something that just became, you know, once you gave it to people, they, you can't take away that right? Why do people see this as a right that can't be taken away?
1: For one thing, the the period of time in which parking on the street was considered, well, technically illegal and also um, kind of outside the norms of society was is now beyond living memory. I mean, we're talking about the 1940s, right? And potentially even earlier. So I don't think it's weird that New Yorkers feel entitled to this to this practice, right? you have been doing it for um, 70 years. Uh, the other thing is that most New Yorkers of a certain age grew up at a time when parking on the street was a lot easier. And this is something that I think, you know, my personal trajectory in New York illustrates. It used to be possible... In most places, to park your your car on the street without too much trouble. But it's just that the city has grown by a million people since the 1990s, and the metro area has also grown, and more and more people have bought cars. And so, at a certain point, what seemed like it was part of the deal for people who moved to New York in the 1970s and 80s, um, that just doesn't scale when everyone on the block has two cars. My favorite detail from the book, which is quite shocking. I swear to God, I have
3: seen some sort of like artist rendering of something similar to this. But th- the the anecdote of a scholar who calculated in 1966, if everyone who commuted into New York drove in alone it would require a five-story parking garage the size of manhattan below 50th street now you know we didn't get that we've got a lot of private garages and another one of my favorite parts i mean i could almost see this blown out as its own story its own book itself which you reveal in the book that parking garages become quite a racket in new york in the 1970s and the 1980s why was it so easy for owners and employees of these garages
1: to uh, to cheat and you know kind of make a fast buck here i think one important thing to remember about parking in the 1970s 80s 90s was that it was an all-cash business and perhaps the largest all-cash business in the united states and not just that, but you are not dealing with an easily measurable amount of inventory, right? Like you can't – you don't have receipts showing how much cheese and tomato sauce you, you bought to make your pizzas, right? You're renting space by time. And it's very easy to fudge the numbers um, about how long somebody stayed and when they arrived, et cetera, especially when in a time before computers when all that's being kept track of in a ledger book if it's being kept track of at all. And then the other thing you have to understand, right, there's, there's, there's levels here. On the one hand, you had these uh, minimum wage employees or potentially even less than minimum wage working for tips who were charged with collecting perhaps $10,000 a night in cash in a box and so you can see how there's some, there's some potential certainly there to slide a few bucks in your pocket. And then on a higher level too for the owners, you know, they've got to report this money to the IRS and you could easily imagine saying, well, maybe we'll just report that there weren't quite so many cars there. And one of the best sources I had for the book was parking auditors which are like a special class of parking professional because they're kind of in an antagonistic position with respect to the rest of the profession but they they all have stories about the shamelessness of you know 80s parking garage owners who would just constantly lie about how many cars were parked so they could pocket more and more cash
3: By the way, I found this stat by the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs and Worker Protection, which counted more than 2,200 licenses for garages and lots in 2015. But by 2021, the number was almost 1,900. So it's actually going down. So people are building less garages and they're building fewer lots. So what is your theory behind that, is it that people are just generally driving less, or are those lots going to other
1: purposes like condos? People are definitely not driving less. I think people are driving more, uh, pandemic mm-hmm. accepted, but the, tr- the long-term trend line is is towards more driving. And I think what that well, shows you is that despite the fact that people always complain about how much it costs to park a car in New York City, it is never, never the most lucrative use of the land to turn it into parking. Like, there's no, mm-hmm. basically no price that people will pay for parking at which it makes more sense to park cars than it does to build housing. And what that shows to me is that uh, parking still is way too cheap, especially on the streets, compared to to what that land would be worth if it could be put to other uses. And you see that, by the way, you see an analogy to that situation with the with the with the street restaurants. It's four dollars an hour to mm-hmm. park in. Manhattan. And it's clear that your least profitable street patio brings in more than $4 an hour in tax revenue.
4: I just, you know, you were mentioning the the ways that the employees of parking garages and the garages themselves, the bosses were perhaps pocketing in a little money on the side. Um, but that, you know, in the bigger ecosystem of parking, that's not the only tricky, fudgy thing going on, right? I mean, you were talking about how drivers themselves cheat as well sometimes. I mean, I was amazed to read your stories about how many city and state and federal employees receive permits that are exempting them from paying for parking. And, and then the entire black market, right, for these counterfeit placards that are out there as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of ecosystem of placards and, and the sort of underworld there?
1: Yeah, I mean, anybody who's walked down a New York City street, especially downtown or in downtown Brooklyn, where there's a lot of government buildings, can attest to the fact that there are illegally parked cars everywhere. And if you look under the windshields, and I encourage you to do this because it is perhaps the fastest path towards being radicalized around parking issues, you will see that just about anybody who works in a courthouse, in the New York City Police Department, in the fire department – Basically, any kind of public worker at all, the district attorney's office, they all have these placards that say they are entitled to park illegally wherever they want. Some of these placards are fake, some are real. there are you know hundreds of kinds. It's very hard to tell what's fake and what's real, and so, as a result, the parking enforcement people rarely give them any any trouble for it. but it is a, an absolutely ubiquitous practice, and I think Errol Lewis, the New York One anchor, kind of put it best, and he said, as we've heard in countless broken windows lectures from the NYPD for decades, tolerating small crimes fosters a sense of lawlessness." sends a go-ahead signal to crooks and leads to bigger and bolder offenses. And he said basically that parking is worth a lot more than, than some of these you know, broken windows offenses, uh, stealing a cigarette or something like that. And he, and he said, if we knew that public employees were routinely and daily stealing milk from supermarkets and taverns around the city while cops not only looked the other way but participated, nobody would shrug and say, who cares? And he said parking in New York City costs a lot more than a gallon of milk, and that's true again, like the mar- market value of these placards, which are sold on the black market is in the thousands of dollars a year and so when people use them to park illegally that's just a hint of uh, how much money they're they're taking away from the city and it's not just in illegal practice that indicates a kind of um, sense of our civil servants being al- above the law, but because so many public employees are able to park illegally, it also means that a lot more people drive to work than would otherwise drive to work if they didn't have the right to park illegally everywhere. So this is also a huge contributor to, to downtown traffic congestion in addition to everything else.
4: Oh, that's right. And also, when you, you mentioned the market rate sort of of those illegal placards, um, you, you talk about in the book the market rate of fines, right, and of tickets, and the fact that there are businesses out there, delivery services, that just acquire tickets right that choose to park illegally um if it means that they get tickets because th- they'd still rather pay the fine at the end of the day than not be able to do their job or deliver their package yeah
1: it's not a good system and i think somebody from the u.s postal service basically said it really honestly they said if we didn't park in bike lanes we could never deliver all the mail in this city
4: oh, God. <laughs> that is, like that sums up the problem right there
3: <laughs> that is dysfunction
1: uh, to the max. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and it's true that the city has designed this system. I don't want to say that they're they're doing it because they love that parking violation revenue, but if you look at the numbers, it's hard not to think that they are okay with the status quo, which is a ton of illegal parking. A ton of traffic congestion from people going around double parked cars and also circling the block looking for parking and a ton of parking violations, uh, which traps people in, in cycles of, of debt and fines. And, and uh, it's really like a system designed backwards in which – and I'll give you some numbers here. Parking violation revenue in uh, fiscal year 2015 was $565 million, half a billion dollars in parking tickets. It is 60% of all fines in New York City are parking tickets. And just to compare, $565 million in parking tickets versus just $210 million from meters and garages. So there's more than twice as much money, almost three times as much money coming in from tickets as there is from, from meters. And to me, what that shows is that they are doing a very, very bad job managing the streets. What they should be doing is raising the meter rates to free up more spaces so that people who need to use their cars to deliver things, to deliver the mail, to drop off packages, et cetera, are able to find a parking space and pay a parking meter instead of paying a $65 fine in right. the mail.
4: And and it does seem – I mean because that's sort of grim, right? But yet by the end of your book, you're talking about changes that are happening in the early 21st century um, that seem to be for the better, right? When activists have started raising public awareness, transportation alternatives, and, and others raising this awareness about the the high cost of free parking. When did that awareness really come to New York, in your opinion?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, the transportation alternatives people have been trying to create infrastructure, for example, bicycle riders, since the 60s, basically, And it's been a long, slow battle, and it took a big step forward during the Bloomberg administration, obviously, because of his transportation commissioner, Jeanette Sadek-Khan, who was really gung-ho about building bike lanes, and not just bike lanes, but protected bike lanes, where cyclists did not feel that they were about to be run over by a box truck at any minute, and that is just they should really not be building any other type of bicycle infrastructure. I think you're creating a situation in people are going to be killed if you're putting the bike lanes on the street uh, next to next to turning trucks. And and that that really took off in in the 2010s. And the other thing that happened, obviously, was City Bike, which I think just set a new daily record. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and just carries an incredible number of people now around the city on bicycles. And that is a system that not only has zero public subsidy, except for the parking spaces it uses, but also only exists in a very small portion of the city. And you can just imagine if that were expanded into neighborhoods in Queens and the Bronx and Brooklyn, how many people would be using this to do those trips that they
4: currently do by car? Who can say? And, and the outcry, remember, when that started and those parking spaces were, quote, sacrificed you know, for the city book, for the docking stations. uh,
1: Of course, people got mad about the all-powerful bicycle lobby. Who could could forget (laughs) Dorothy Rabinowitz's uh, creed occur in the Wall Street Journal about that. But, you know, the fact is, right, in New York City, most households do not own cars. And in the densest neighborhoods where the fight for the parking is the most intense, the ratio is particularly ridiculous. Like on the Upper West Side, for example, there are 18 residents for every unmetered curb parking space. So it's never gonna work that everybody owns a car and parks one on the street. It's just not gonna work. And the fact that people who drive still feel that they are entitled to this space above all the other things that the city could be doing with with it, I think is is an attitude that seems more and more out of step with the times as we begin to recognize the costs of devoting so much of our public space to the storage of automobiles.
3: I guess sort of to wrap up here or to step way back. And I just want to be hopeful about the future, <laughs> or I want to be able to see a future where we're able to balance this better. Do you have any like special hopes or things that like you are optimistic about in terms of the future of parking, not only in New York, but really throughout
1: the United States? Anything to look forward to? <laughs> Well, I think some people feel like the changes during the pandemic where open streets were created and parking spaces were turned into restaurant patios, like there's been some retrenchment there and that the, the car people have come and they've taken back their taken back their territory. And I, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. And there's definitely cities like, you know, Philadelphia where they've come back in force and they've seized almost all of that that parking territory back. But there's also a lot of places where they haven't. Um you know, the, the road in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco is is now closed to cars permanently and was closed by plebiscite. They actually had an up-and-down vote for the whole city. Indianapolis is closing part of its central square to cars. I was just in Cincinnati, which has closed a bunch of uh, streets to cars and has little parklets set up outside restaurants. So I think this realization has just begun to take hold that we can use our streets for something besides parking. And I think it is it is coming to New York as well, slowly but surely, because the fact is, at the end of the day, the people who do not have cars in New York are a majority. And our politicians remain, um, unfortunately, seem to display an attitude that there's something like sort of blue collar and every man-ish about defending the rights of drivers to park and drive wherever they want. But the reality is that there's far more people in, in New York City who ride the bus than who own cars. And if you put that together with the bike share and the restaurants and the need to, you know, soak up more stormwater before it floods people's basement apartments, there's all these things that we could be doing with that precious public land besides storing cars. That's hopeful. Good. That's very hopeful actually, yes. <laughs> and it's very hopeful
4: to think of getting across town in a bus more efficiently as well. I mean, look at what happened to Fourteenth Street. It can happen it is not rocket science. It can happen.
1: It could even be done. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing is that it could be done tomorrow. I mean, you could literally just put a bunch of red cones down, put a couple of police officers there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this does not require like a six-year environmental review.
4: And and you mentioned Jeanette Sada Khan. And remember how, yeah, during Bloomberg's administration, they were just doing that, right? I mean, they were just reclaiming spaces for outdoor, outdoor areas to sit down and squares and parks. And I have a feeling that it'd be very hard to take those back from people today.
1: Yeah, those spaces have become really, really beloved, and they're full of people. And also, they're they're pretty like – they're really diverse spaces too, you know? And I think that they really express the best of public design in New York City, which is to say they're, they're built for the whole public. And you see that even with city bike stations. There'll be people who just post up and take a seat on the bikes. And maybe that means that we don't have enough public seating. Surely it does. But it also is just a, a just a testament to the way that, you know, you put things in and you see how people use them. And sometimes there's, there's funny little surprises.
4: <laughs> Henry Grabar's book is Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Henry Grabar, congrats on yes. this fascinating book. And thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
4: We want to thank Henry Grabar for joining us on the show today to discuss his fantastic book, Pave Paradise. There's something in there for everyone, including the story of ice cream trucks, the parking crisis throughout the United States.
3: Please visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, for images of New York's automobile past and pictures of city streets as they once were, with only the occasional parked car or two. Um, This week on our Patreon-only show, Side Streets, Tom and I will be discussing our own adventures behind the wheel in New York City. (laughs) Buckle your seatbelts, indeed. (laughs) Tune in by becoming a supporter on Patreon.com and join other new patrons, including Nicole R. from Louisiana, Shannon L. from South Carolina, Maverick S. from Ohio, and additional patrons Amanda R., Julie J., Peter R., Fern R., Sherry M, Bill W, and Banjo Bear. (laughs) Join the action at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
4: And we would also love to invite you to join us in the streets as well with our amazing team at Bowery Boys Walks. We we talk all the time about our regular public tours, tours of Greenwich Village, Gilded Age Mansions of Fifth Avenue, historic Harlem and the Brooklyn Bridge. But I wanted to point out that our private tours are a really fun activity for small groups. Um, Our guides lead tours for office parties and group orientations and student groups, family reunions, birthday parties, you name it. And our tour manager, Craig, can really help customize them to fit your needs. It's a a great way to explore the city's history and see New York in a new way. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com to find out more about public tours and private group tours. So thank you very much for listening.
3: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And